dad was born in 1904, mom a few years later, and um, it was hard back then. So my mom and dad never really had the benefit of parents that, that said, you know, we love you, we, we um, are excited about you, you're doing a good job. All the things that build up your confidence, they didn't have that. So they didn't really know enough to give it to us. I don't ever remember my dad saying, Howard, you did a good job, or you did well in school, or a good report card. I don't remember them saying anything about my report card, to be honest. I don't know why. It's just that they were always so busy trying to, trying to make ends meet, trying to keep food on the table. And so I grew up with, um, I guess I'm not all that important. And it was the Lord that finally changed that early 30s. <clears throat> but it's something that we all have to deal with. None of us have perfect parents or had. And those of you who are parents, you probably acknowledge you're not perfect parents. And so we're at that place where if we're going to have value, we have to receive the affirmation of that value from somewhere else besides the people that are around us. I certainly didn't get it from teachers in the school. Um, I don't think their background was any better than anybody else's. They probably never got affirmed as people. So, after I became serious about the Lord, to fill with the Spirit, um, and the excitement of that started to come back down to where life was uh, a bit more normal than what it had been before, I still wondered, why is it now that I'm serving the Lord, I'm giving my life to Him, even though I'm still in the business world, I'm giving my life to Him, but I still don't feel much better about myself. I don't see myself as, as more valuable than I saw myself before. And I, I was curious about that, because the Bible said, you know, I'm fearfully, wonderfully made, all that stuff that you've heard sermons on. And yet it wasn't working for me. You know the old problem. You have it up here, but it's not in your heart. And so, it took an encounter with the Lord one, one time when I was away at a cottage to help me work through that. And so the verses that confused me was Ephesians 2, verses 10, for example. It says, For we are God's workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now that should in itself say, wow, I'm really important. God knew I was coming. God has prepared stuff for me. So therefore, because of what I'm going to do, I'm going to be important. And that uh, wasn't working for me. And so, the verse that I... Um, Read one day that changed my outlook on me was the Hosea 4.6. My people were destroyed for lack of knowledge. Up to that point in my life, I basically blamed other people because of my low self-image, low self-esteem. And that verse spoke to me, and I realized I, it isn't other people that destroy me. It's my attitude towards them. It's my attitude towards life. That destroyed me, and I've got to start taking responsibility for who I am, what my worth is, and where I'm going. So, 
when you begin to um, work at it, and the Lord helping me as He'll help you, begin to bring me out of that place of low self-esteem and her image. And, and yet there's then the danger at the other end is called pride. And so you start saying, Lord, I need a balance here. I need to walk in humility. And yet I need to really acknowledge that I am a valuable person. Um, it also helped when I heard somebody explain what humility is. When you, when you understand humility, you get to understand pride much better. But humility is basically seeing myself the way God sees me. Seeing myself the way He sees me. That was driven home. I was talking to a guy. I was down in the streets in Kitchener, and I had the zeal to talk to people about the Lord. And I said to a guy on the street, just start talking about the Lord. I asked him where he was in his life and about the Lord. And all of a sudden, he just said, there's no way I would worship God He's the most proudful being in the whole universe. He demands that we worship Him. He demands that we obey Him. And there's no way I'm going to serve a God like that. It blew me away. I didn't know what to say. It was one of those times when you go home with your tail between your legs, licking your wounds. And so I started just saying, what's wrong? Because yes, God is the one who says that we're to worship Him. He is the one that says that we're to put Him first because um, logically He's the most important being in the whole universe. He's the creator of life, the creator of the planets, the creator of the stars. He is. But when I heard somebody say that humility is seeing us just the way we are, I said, that God's humble. He even calls Himself humble. When He talked to Moses on the mountain, He called Himself humble. How can you call yourself humble and not be proud? I said, I, I, was, I was totally humble, and then I had to repent of my pride. You see, it's counterproductive, but I began to realize God sees Himself exactly the way He is, and therefore He can say, I am God Almighty, because He is. So then I began to say to myself, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am made in the image of God. I have value because of who made me, who fussed over me. And I started to walk out of it. So, let's look at Matthew 4, 3. Let's just talk about how the enemy probes us to find out if we're really secure or not. Here's a good verse for you. In Philippians, I'm, I'll give you the reference maybe later. Philippians, it says that Jesus, when he, when he um, saw himself in the appearance of man, the first thing he did was humble himself. All right? So in that verse, or in that passage, pardon me, it starts to talk about the people that see themselves the way God sees them, and it comes out a statement like this, that the that the love of God, our obedience to God, has put a guard around our hearts and our minds. My mind is what I'm thinking. My heart is my intention, my desire to do things for the Lord. 
My obedience to God has put a guard around that so the enemy can't tell what I'm thinking and what my intentions are. And when I begin to realize that, all the junk I've been through before was Satan doing things in my life, and I would expose my poor self-image. I would be intimidated by people. Matter of fact, for the first number of years in the business world, you know, I'm raising a Christian home, but I would go with the guys after after meetings, business meetings and stuff. We they go to the bars and and they would order their drinks. I would order a ginger ale and something because I, I didn't drink, but I wanted to be with them because they're telling jokes and the jokes were always that plain and just I just because I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be part of the guys. As a matter of fact. When people did the evaluation on me, my higher-ups did the evaluation on me, one of the questions on that evaluation was, is he one of the guys? I know that because then I used to get the same seats to do on the guys that worked for me. And I thought, oh, wow, they want me to be one of the guys, too, if I'm expecting the other. And so there was a fear of man that came in and crowded me around. Well, you see, Satan, in Matthew chapter 4, was probing Jesus to say if he was secure. And he's, now when you hear this, the temptation of Jesus, you might hear somebody expounding on many different things. But I want to draw one lesson from, and, and out of the three times, there's something he said twice. Let's look at verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Then in verse 6, the, the other temptation. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. This is what I want you to see. Satan was probing him, saying, If you are the Son of God. Now, if Jesus had any doubts about his sonship, he would have been tempted to say, Well, I guess to make sure I am a Son of God, I better make these stones into bread. But you see, he was secure. He knew who he was. He knew who he was. As a matter of fact, if you went to John 13, at the beginning of that chapter, he's washing the disciples' feet. You know the story. You know why the disciples were shocked? Because this, this um, prophet, who they saw as the Son of God once in a while, they didn't always see their gender, they're waffling and they're thinking on it. But this one who was prophesied and now it's being fulfilled that will set them free from the Roman Empire. This one who's going to be king, and um, Matthew's going to be the treasurer, and Peter will be head of fisheries. You understand what they are? They had all this stuff in their minds. It's important one that they're, they're on the inside for the next government, and they'll be important people. What's he doing? He's washing the feet. And washing feet is the lowest, most menial job you could have in their culture. If you if you had a household with three slaves in it, the, the least seniority slave, it was his problem, his job, when company came to wash their feet. And this one who's going to be king? That's why Peter said, no, you're not going to wash my feet. I want to be minister of fisheries. <laughs> And you say, Jesus could do that. Listen, he could do that because he knew who he was. 
He had value that had nothing to do with whether you wore faith or whether you're king. He knew he was valuable. There's a couple of times it says when the Pharisees were after him, it says Jesus answered a certain way. He said because he knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. He was secure. Listen, he's, he's the most complete man of history, as far as I'm concerned. He was all man. He was secure in his manhood because he knew his father. And, he, and we can be the same way because the father promises you, it's one, that he wants to create us, remold us, remake us into the image of his son. He didn't say your wife will do it or your husband will do it or your mother or dad will do it. It's the Father is making us into the image of His Son. And right now in this teaching, that means to be made in the image of His Son means I will be secure in who I am. It doesn't matter what people say about me. It doesn't matter about what they do to me. I am secure in who I am. So Lord, what do you want me to do today? Because all that other stuff doesn't matter. And it's not impossible to be there. All right, so let's let's just go into the image scriptures here, your value scriptures. Most of you've heard them, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, except for the third one we have to. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. For you, for you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully... Stop for a minute. The word fearfully means with great respect and great awe. You fearfully and wonderfully made me. Your works are wonderful. I know them full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Of course, that's the mother's womb. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Hold it. If I'm in my mother's womb, why is he saying I'm created in the depths of the earth? And I struggle with that. And then one day, reading Genesis 1, it says, God spoke to the earth and told that earth to give up all the plants, the vegetables, the fruits, everything we would need. So, this is what, 6,000 years later, give or take a few hours, God has still spoken to the earth. That earth is still responding to what God said 6,000 years ago. And he gave up all the vitamins, minerals, and nutrients, everything my mother needed to grow me up in her womb. That's how powerful God's Word was 6,000 years ago, by the way. But you see, I know that God was fussing over the earth that grew the vegetables and the fruits that my mother needed, the grains that the chickens need to lay an egg, the hay that the cows needed to make milk and all that, and steak and all that stuff. You see, all that stuff is spelled out by God when He said, Earth, give up and obey me. He says there is no God. It's impossible without God. Another, that's another sermon. All right, so I was woven in the depths of the earth. Then it says in verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. You've seen pictures of the little, you know, two weeks, you know. Unformed body, God was looking at you. He didn't the x-ray or MRIs or whatever. The, he, he could see with all that. And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I have this. 
I have this philosophy based on that sentence that before you're ever born, God wrote all the wonderful things, all His heart's desire for you, what you would do in life. I even believe He had my wife's name in there before she was even born, before I was born, that He intended me to marry her and to have the children that we have and the ministry that we're doing. I believe all that stuff was written in that book. However, in the early years of my life, my teenagers into my 20s, there's some things that I did that were not written in that book and they broke God's heart. I love the fact He wrote in a book about me and you. You got a book, I got a book. You got that? We have a book. And He wrote in it. I'm sure He didn't write in the bad stuff. He wrote in the good stuff. Alright, we have to move on. The second reason why we have value is because He died in my place. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Now people have said, if I was the only person on planet Earth, Jesus still would have died for me. I believe that. There's no way I can prove that. I shouldn't have to. He just loves people. For God, you know, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. It doesn't say for Jesus so loved the world. He does. But start it with God. And He loves us so much. He's willing to give the most precious thing. You know, the song out of New Zealand says, the darling of heaven He sacrificed. He gave that so that you and I could be saved. That establishes value because it says in First John that you wouldn't die for someone who isn't your friend. Isn't that right? You wouldn't die for somebody who isn't your friend. Well, we're called friends of God. In fact, we're more than friends now. We're sons and daughters. That's why Jesus is my hero. Um, I looked up the word hero in Webster's Dictionary one time. I have one that was published around 1900, so it has more Webster stuff in it than... Because Noah Webster was a godly man. He was a Christian man. He uses scripture all the time to give you understanding of what the word means. But his definition of hero is someone who's willing to die in your place. Which which eliminated a lot of people in my... See, Wayne Gretzky never said he'd die in my place. So he's, he's a wonderful hockey player, but he's not my hero. He's not my hero. I only know one. Now, maybe somebody here might say, oh, Howard, I'll be your hero. Well, I hope you never have to prove it because um, means you have to die in my place. But that's, that's what Jesus is for us. So, if he's my friend, he's my hero, he died for me, that puts value in me. All right, so those two, let's leave them. Let's go on to the third one. God made me his child. This is going to take a few minutes to give you understanding. Because it was brand new to me when I read First Peter one day. After I finished the chapter, the Lord said, read it again. And I did. I'm all finished. It's the born again chapter. I understand it. Why do I have to read it a second time? He said, read it again. The third time, the lights came on. 
So let's start at 1 Peter 1, 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So birth has to do with someone seed joined with an egg and birth happens. And all of us went through that process. You probably don't remember it, but you went through that process. However, he's talking about a new birth now. Even Zacchaeus, who was an educated man, couldn't understand it. And it took Jesus to give him some understanding. So let's flip over to verses 18 and 19 of that same chapter. It says, For we know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you redeemed from the empty way of life was handed down to you by your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb without blemish or defect. And so Peter is trying to establish that this born-again experience has nothing to do with our ancestors now. It has to do with something different. And it says in 1 Peter 1, 23, it says, You were born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, which was the Word of God. So when I read it the third time, that chapter, it struck me. This is not just some kind of a metaphor or some kind of a little story, but it's an actual thing that happened. There was actually a seed, which is called the Word of God. But I believe that seed came from the heart of God just as 2,000 years ago. The Holy Spirit brought a seed from the Father, put it in a little girl named Mary, and she conceived and gave birth to the man that we call Jesus. And so now, 2,000 years later, um, He sends the Holy Spirit again with a seed, which He calls the Word of God, but it was a seed that was put in me. And the reason why I became a born-again person was because the heart that was born of a parent's back there is dead and buried. He's under the water. He's buried. It's called baptism. I'm going to get to that in a minute. We need to understand, if you're dead, as Romans 6 makes it very clear, if we're dead, but we're still alive, we must have been born again. And so here I am, standing before you, I'm not the Howard I used to be. That one's dead and buried. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, the seed that came from the Father makes me His child. Literally. I'm convinced it's little. I'm literally His child. Not just some spiritual thing. I am literally His child. It's very spiritual. But I'm literally His child. Let's go on and I'll prove it to you. John 1, verses 12 and 13. Most of you are familiar with verse 12. But verse 13 has a bit of revelation in it. Let's read it all. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. But then verse 13 says, Children, listen, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. 
Can I repeat that for you? The guy you're looking at up here, oh, you could look at your neighbor if you want to because you're all Christian here. The guy you're looking at is not the guy that was born of an Eleanor Orville. Well, way back there, none of your business how many years ago, but way back then. I was born again, not because of what my father did, not because of what my mother did, but I'm born of God, which means I am his son now, not Orville and Elder. Thank God for them, but I'm not their son. Now, the physical body you're looking at is their son. Okay? The physical body. Pink and lumpy as it might be, it's the physical body and it's their... But Howard, you know the... Um, Someday my great-great-grandchildren will stand at my coffin and say, that's really not grandpa, that's just his body. You understand? I'm talking about that part that will be gone. The real Howard. That's what's born again, and that's what doesn't belong to my parents anymore. I'm a creature. I'm a created in Christ Jesus. I have the seed of the Father in me. And that's why all the way through the New Testament, we are called children of God. In the Old Testament, they were not called children of God very often. I don't think ever, because they, won't, they couldn't be born again. Jesus had died on the cross. So they're called children of Abraham or children of Adam. But in the New Testament, we're children of God. Now let's go on. Let's look at um, Romans 1, verses 1 to 4. This is... Paul's talking about Jesus. This is very important that you understand what I'm saying right now is not ridiculous because Paul said it before I did. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, that's Jesus, of course. Listen, who to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So that last part, that last phrase of His resurrection from the dead, that proves He was the Son of God. That's why it says in Romans 6, when we come up out of that water, we're a new creature in Christ Jesus, the seed of the Father is in there, and just because I've been resurrected from my death, I will have eternal life just like my older brother, Jesus, has eternal life and was raised from the dead. He already has been. I yet have to wait for mine. I'm not in a hurry, but I know it will happen. So, this passage of Scripture in Romans says, Jesus was the son of David in the physical, but he's the son of God inside. That's what it says. I'm not, I'm not starting a new denomination here. I'm just telling you what it says. And so, all of a sudden I start to think, you know something? I'm really a child of God. I'm not just an ordinary Howard. I'm really a child of God. His seed is in me. Just like my older brother, Jesus, had the seed of the Father. He put a seed in me. Since He sent the Holy Spirit with seed for 
Mary. He said the same as the Holy Spirit and put in me when I come up out of that grave. How does I become a new creation? How does I become born again? If you're going to be born, you have to have seed. And so I'm very happy because now I know I was fearfully and wonderfully made in my mother's womb. Psalm 139, I read it to you. And Jesus loved me so much, he died for me before he ever even met me. But now I realize that I'm a child of God. And that's not a proudful statement. That's a fact. I'm not just boasting about the fact I'm a child of God. I don't have to boast about it. Anybody that accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and gets baptized, you have to die. If you don't die, you can't be born again. And we recommend that if you die, you'll be buried, because if you don't, you start to stink. Some of you know that. And so I understand that I am a child of God. All right, so let's go on. Second Peter chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life, and godliness through our knowledge of Him, that's Jesus, of course, who called us by His own glory and goodness. It says, through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. He's talking about me now being able to participate in the divine nature of the Lord God Himself and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. We're going to be telling you about taking scriptures and actually using it to fight against the enemy. This is an excellent one, especially verse 4. If Satan comes at you and starts putting you down for you to set him Satan or demon, I am functioning in the divine nature of Jesus, my older brother. I am not interested in the corruption of the world. I'm interested in functioning in His nature. You're doing warfare. I'll get to that later. Now, this whole thing of adoption mainly came to your mind. There's about three references in the New Testament that God said, well, we really weren't born of a seed. That's just, that's just some kind of a, a play on words. Actually, the Bible says we're adopted. No, if you read Romans 8, 23, you would realize that the, the adoption is still for the future. And then if you read Romans 9, 4, he's talking about the Jews, how they were adopted as God's precious people in the Old Testament. He couldn't put the seed in them because were, there's no way their sin could be atoned for. It was covered over, but not atoned for. In Ephesians 1, 5, it talks about his predestination of how he wants us to be. But this, to me, this whole adoption thing is going to be down the road somewhere when, when Jesus returns or I'm raised from the dead, the Bible says I'll have a new body. How many are looking forward to that? Good, three. All right, now, <laughs> that means the rest of them like what they got. Okay, well, they can have them. Now, you see, when I come up with that, God's going to say, yes, that's, that's a body. I'm interested in the soul, but that's the body, so I'll adopt the body, but that real heart inside is still a dot. It's still my precious son. 
That's what I got from that. You get whatever you want from it. Let's talk about water baptism. How does the blood of Jesus and water baptism work together to cause us to be born again? The blood of Jesus paid the price that our sins created. Water baptism washes the, the sin away. And I'm going to show you scripture for both of those. First of all, the blood of Jesus. There's many scriptures. I'll use Ephesians 1, 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So we don't have to belabor that. If you're raised in a Christian home or an evangelical church, you know right well it's the blood of Jesus that deals with our sin. Now let's talk about water baptism. Water baptism um, is compared in, this, in the Bible to the time when the Israelites came out of Egypt through the water. What did that do? It separated them from their old way of life. It says of Noah, when he went into the ark, in 1 Peter 3, it talks about there are three times, it's not in your notes, but three times it talks about how that water that saved Noah, he was saved by the water, it says three times. So, how come Jesus' blood saves me from my sin, and yet it says water baptism saves me? Well, they save us from two different things. Water baptism, pardon me, the blood saves me from my sin. Water baptism saves me from my old way of life. Death separates me from my old way of life. And if you, when we read here in a minute, you'll see that. So, Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. The same. We have evangelicals, we've moved away from this whole thing of needing both. But here the Bible says very clearly, this is a statement of Jesus. Believes and is baptized will be saved. Ananias, in Acts 22, when he had prayed for Saul, who later became Paul, said, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. So, there's something about water baptism that works with the blood. It's the blood that atones for our sin. And Ananias is kind of saying, it's the water that's going to wash the thing away. The sins are dealt with, paid for, washes away. To me, that's not a big issue. You can believe whatever you want to believe there. But in Acts chapter 2, they said to, they said to um, Peter, what do we have to be, do to be saved? And he says, um, repent and be baptized. Again, they include baptism in the whole thing of conversion. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. It was just in the last maybe 50, 60 years that churches start separating water baptism from conversion. If back in the late 1800s, um, 1700s, way back to the early church, in the early church there's actually records. If you said um, to somebody, uh, you're a Christian, I want to follow Jesus, they said, okay, come on, we're going to baptize you. And you would go in the water like they did with John the Baptist, um, confessing their sins, and then he baptized them. They, the two were brought, and they were one and the same, even though there were two actions. We need to get a hold of that. I'm not saying if you're not baptized, you're not saved, um, but I might say this based on what I've just read. You may not be separated from your old way of life, and that thing keeps haunting you because you're not separated from it. Egypt was separated, pardon me, 
Israel was separated by Egypt by the water that the New Testament says that was their baptism. In 1 Corinthians 10, it's very clear. Part, first part of that chapter. All right, so, Romans 6. This is the most key passage of Scripture about water baptism. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Number one, stop for a minute. When I'm baptized, I'm saying, as Jesus had to die, I have to die. Jesus died to everything He wanted and obeyed the Father and came. I have to die to everything I want, my dreams, my ambitions, so God can have His way in me. That's what I'm doing. It's just not symbolic of something. It's just not letting your neighbors know you're going to serve the Lord now. It has to do with dying to your old way of life and saying that that old person is dead and buried. He doesn't sin anymore. I'm going to serve the Lord. Verse 4, We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, verse 5 says that again, Titus. If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. Could I read verse 5 in the negative? If we have not been united with Him in His death, we will certainly not be united with Him in His resurrection. I think I have permission to read it that way. I don't like reading it that way, but we need to get something inside that water baptism is not just kind of an accessory that we can purchase to join with us. It's something that the New Testament church all through the book of Acts and in the New Testament, uh, there's writings after the New Testament called apostolic writings for almost 800 years. And they never separated the two. We shouldn't either. Verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Here's a little story. Let's say a lady has a husband who's not a Christian. She has a couple of children, and they're Christians, but he sits at home when they go to church. He sits at home, he's drinking, he's sitting around the dirty t-shirt watching a football game or whatever whatever people do. I'm not saying those things are evil, but um, drinking and swearing. And so they go to church when they get home from church. They find him sitting in his chair, but he's had a heart attack, and he's dead. Now, this is what I want you to say. He doesn't drink anymore. He doesn't smoke anymore. He doesn't swear anymore. Why isn't he doing those things anymore? He's dead. As a matter of fact, I have a challenge for you. When we're all done this week, and you want something to do a nice day. Just get yourself a folding chair and a bottle of water and a bit of food if you want. Go find a cemetery somewhere. Pick a stone and sit down in front of that stone and keep your eye on the person that's buried there. Let's say his name is Harry. Now, after maybe eight, ten hours, you'll come to this conclusion. He never committed one sin while I was what? he's dead. When I go into that water, I'm saying, Lord, I'm dead to that way of life. I'm dead. And I want to be buried. 
And just as Jesus is buried, identify with him, but up out of that water comes a new creature because there's been a seed put in here. And you see, that seed says, I'm a child of God, no longer a child of those parents. I'm a child of God. It says in verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with Him. And I think that's talking about eternity, not just this life. I'm sure it is. Now, here's the importance of what I'm saying. I'm saying this because there's a warfare aspect that's extremely valuable. I've done it many times. It's worked for me superly. It started with a guy named Augustine in the fourth in the fourth century. So this is not a new theory I'm coming. It's not a new way of warfare. But let's read it. I've got it in your notes. In the Confessions of St. Augustine in the fourth century, he writes his autobiography and includes, of course, his conversion. Now stop there for a minute. He was a philosopher, he was a man of the world, but he got saved and he's writing about it. Interestingly, after he becomes a Christian, he was accosted by a prostitute whose services he used prior to his conversion. She calls him out by name in the street, and he responds to her, Augustine died, he cannot hear you. Glory to God. I'm not teaching you something new here. This is from the 4th century. Somebody doing it. Paul knew about it. If we're died, we won't sin. And you see, that death means that at some point in my life, I made a decision. Lord, I don't want what I want. I don't, all my dreams, all my visions, all my ambitions, I'm dying to them. They're dead. They're buried. I want to live for you and no one else. Because I'm your child, I'll live for you. That's what it means. And you see, when Augustine saw that vo- or heard that voice, go talk to the dead person. That, as a matter of fact, that's the way I use it. If the enemy is tempting me with something, I'll say, demon, the man that used to do that, used to commit that sin, he's dead and he's buried. I even tell the boy, I say, he's buried in a tank under the stage of a missionary church campground up at Stainer, Ontario. Now, if you want to tempt Howard to go up there and look for him, he's either in the tank they're in the septic system. But go tempt him. You know, you know what you're doing? You're saying to Satan, I am not the man that used to do that. I'm not the woman that used to do that. That gives me understanding why in church history, modern church history, a man that read a lot on it told me this. I haven't proved it for myself. But he said, over the years of the evangelical church, even before that, there's been more church splits, people put to death, as a result of water baptism than any other doctrine. The Anabaptists knew, but they lost their life because they baptized people. They had their houses burned because they baptized people as Adams. Satan hates it because if you get it into your heart, I'm not the guy that used to do what I'm being to. I'm not that person anymore. He's dead and buried. When you get that in there, you've got a weapon of war that he hates. He hates it. Now, some of you need to understand that 
eternity, the word doesn't mean forever and ever. Eternity means timelessness. So some of you here, even though you're buried, you were baptized years ago, got saved years ago, doesn't matter. You need to make a declaration over some of your struggles, your depressions, your, your addictions. You need to make a decision to start saying, the person that used to do that is dead and buried. I don't do that. I don't think that way. The person that had depression is dead and buried. I don't think that way. I don't see myself that way. You're taking Scripture, and you're doing exactly what Jesus did with Scripture. Boom, with the sword. Back thing. When Jesus tempted, he did two things. He got the sword out, got the shield out, boom, boom, boom. We'll talk to you more about it in a minute. But listen, Paul calls you a soldier. Do you know why? Because there's a war on. And what's the enemy fighting for? You. You're the land he's trying to claim. You're the victim he wants to claim. And we, we are required to do warfare. If you're content to go crawl in the corner and cry and like a fetal position, feel sorry for yourself and call your counselor, and, well, Satan's going to walk all over you. It's about time we stood up as Christians and said, Hold it a minute. I'm not the person that used to heal the man. That guy is dead and buried. I'm a new person. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. Don't be confused by the fact I'm still walking around in the same body. Don't let that confuse you, demons. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. And I, listen, what I'm saying right now has so changed my life. I make no apology for being strong on it. And I don't care what your church believes. I'm telling you what the Bible believes and what I believe is the result of the Bible. The Bible says water baptism I'm dead and I'm buried. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. I was raised being told when you're baptized, it's the testimony to the people around you. The Bible never, ever says that. I know it is, but it never says that. Where they got that, I have no idea. Some guy must have teached it before he went to bed and had a dream. But just say, God, forgive us for Forgive the teachers that told me that. The people I was baptized in 13 up at Stainer Camp. Some of you know that campground. I thank God. One day I decided to do a study on it. And the water baptism I found in the scripture isn't the water baptism I was told about. There's another baptism I wasn't told about, and that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that later this week. All right, so why am I making all this fuss? Well, I'll tell you. <clears throat> we'll get back to value now. When Bruce Dobbs was talking about that those, that, those people that were trying to get a praise and approval to establish their value, that whole thinking comes out of the Greek culture. As a matter of fact, it's the Greeks that invented the Olympics, so way before the time of Christ, the Olympics were on. The trouble with the Olympics is that you, you have value if you can be one-tenth of a second faster than your opponent in a race. You see, and if you're one-tenth of a second slower 
You're not the you're not the second winner. You're the first loser. You got that? Here's why. The first guy gets a gold frame that's supposed to weigh somebody told me that was in there with some two pounds, no, two um, three or four ounces, I forget what the gold frame. And um you figure that out in gold, and they're not solid gold, by the way, they're plated. But um, it might be worth nowadays at two or three thousand dollars. The trouble with the second, what we call the winner, is that they get a um, silver one that's worth more like thirty-five dollars an ounce versus two thousand an ounce. So all of a sudden, because you're one tenth of a second slower, your value drops from maybe four thousand dollars. About seventy dollars, and then if you're third, you get a bronze thing. Now I don't know what bronze is worth. All I know is they make bathroom caps out of it. So one, all of a sudden your value is plummeting because you're not quite as fast as the other guy. Now the interesting thing about the Olympics, I'm only interested in talking about in relation to value what it does. Our whole Greek society, which nearly everybody on planet Earth, outside of Jewish people, and they may be subjected to it as well, but is that you have to earn your value. You have to perform, you have to be somebody important, you have to be tall, slender, good-looking like a Barbie, or, or handsome and honk like a Schwarzenegger, whatever. You have to be something to be have value. And the scriptures I read to you doesn't agree with that at all. And yet that's what we've been taught. And so it's interesting, I was teaching this in, in um, Jamaica at the Wyman School back, and it has to be 10 years ago now. And when I was finished teaching it, the same subject, I went into their library just to wait for the call for lunch. And along the bottom of the bookshelf was just hundreds of National Geographic magazine. So I just picked one to, to waste time. It turned out to be February year 2000. It had an edition, and the whole thing was about the Olympics. And I saw in there a centerfold of the, of the beginning of Olympic, where they have six young ladies who are high priestess, the god of Cyrus carrying the flame to light the torch and so on. But now since then, I've seen it in television. The Winnipeg Summer Games had the same. They had ladies there who were high priestess. They made it. The one in Greece, they did it. And there was one at the other time was the Winter Olympics. I think it was in Japan. They've made no bones about it, that the Olympics is demonic and start. And if you go into, I've even got a website there for you, um, United Kingdom History of the Olympics, um, they have a, an article there, and they make it very clear. Um, this is a government website. It's not um, a church website. They make it very clear. The whole thing was started in the occult. It's based on certain gods, Greek gods and Egyptian gods, and the whole thing is, is um, carried by the demonic. And you see, back when, um, when the um, Olympics was in Greece, some pastors from Greece that are godly men emailed people in the States. Somebody forwarded one to me saying, please pray for us. There's such a strong demonic influence 
in our nation because of the Olympics here this year. We are fearful for our church. My conclusion is this. If I am looking at performance to establish my value, I'm involving myself in the occult. I'm doing exactly what the occult wanted me to do. That is, getting value from what I do. And that's the only reason why I bring this whole thing up. Because I want you to understand when he was talking about the compliant lady and the competitive lady, he's talking about people that have yielded to the Greek culture, the occultist Greek culture. I'm not saying the Greek church, I'm saying that philosophy is. And we need to make a decision. I want no more part of it. I'm going to see my value is coming from the Lord. I don't have to work for it. I don't have to strive for it. It's mine as a gift. You see, the first two things I said about being created in, in the womb fearfully, wonderfully, that applies to every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. Everybody. The second one, Jesus died for it. That applies to everybody as well. It gives them value because of those two things. The third one has to do with people who are born again and water baptized. We now have a third thing. It's the fact that I'm his child and you're his daughter. I'm his son. And that gives me value. Why? Because, here we go. You ready? Now, first of all, Paul warned us in Ephesians 2.6, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. That's what I'm talking about. We've been taken deceptive. We've been taken captive through this stuff, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Now, here's why I've belabored this whole thing. In the great culture, our value is based on how well we've done. In the Hebrew culture, their value is based on who your father is. Now that's different. You see, when Jesus said to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, anybody here ever preach and use that as your opening statement? You see, when he you said to steal the women's tomb or the widow's tomb or the home, pardon me. Listen, you know how they responded? They didn't disagree because they knew right well he was right. They just said, Well, our father is Abraham. Our father is Moses. What were they doing? They were saying, Well, I might be a crook, but I still have value based on who my father is. That's the way the Greeks, or pardon me, the Hebrews saw life. My value is based on my father. Read the first chapter in Matthew, third chapter in Luke. What is it? This long line of genealogy. Why? Because I, oh yes, there's my name there, and there's my father, and his father, and there. ah, there's Abraham. I have value because of all that. That's a lot simpler, isn't it? You might say, well, yes, but how would you understand? My dad beat me, or my dad was alcoholic, or my dad ran away from my, my mom and the family. No, no. He's not your father anymore. God is your father. And my value is based on who my daddy is. My value is based on who my daddy is. You got that? If you're not water baptized, if you've never accepted the Lord as your personal Savior, I assumed you all have, you wouldn't be here. 
But if you haven't, we want to work with you. And if I have to, I'll take you down that little creek. And that little creek isn't big enough or deep enough to get you all under, but I'll just roll you over a few times. <laughs> and it'll be cold, which helps you remember that you did it. Okay. I want to look at John the Baptist. I love this guy. I'm looking forward to meeting him. I'm sure he has different clothes by now. Luke 1 5. It says there that his dad, his dad and mom were righteous people. His dad was an important man. He lived there, and his mom was a godly woman. And then in, in John 1 9, the Pharisees came to him and said, Are you, are you the Messiah that's coming? Are you, the, are you Elijah? And so here's John the Baptist. He's got good parents. And he's, and he's got this comparison thing. People see him, maybe he's the Christ, or maybe he's Elijah come back to life again. But John says, no, 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 no. If you want to know who I am, Isaiah will tell you who I am. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You know, again, he said, all the stuff you guys see, my parents, you think I'm the Messiah? Think, no, no, all that stuff is wrong. Here's the reality. Check the Word of God to see who I am. And I say to you, reality is, check the Word of God to see who you are. You're fearfully, wonderfully made. Somebody died for you that loved you much, which put value in you. But thirdly, you have a daddy in heaven that's got more value you will ever be able to comprehend, and you're his child. And your value is based on who your father is. That's reality. That's reality. Are you ready to be a John the Baptist? Say, do you want to know who I am? Check the scriptures. The demon comes to you and starts whispering to you, oh, you'll never make it, you'll never amount to anything. Just say, demon, you check the scriptures. They tell you who I am. I'm a child of God. You know what I used to do? Satan would start hammering on my head about something, and I'd say, Satan, the demon, I've got a hold of the hand of my daddy. You know how kids hold on to one finger? I've got a hold of my daddy's hand. You can't get to me until you get through him first. Isn't that what fathers did? If the bully came down the street, the little boy would step in behind his daddy, and daddy would deal with the bully. You have permission to do that. I didn't copyright it. So it says there, we have three basic things. I've just told them to you. We're fearfully, wonderfully made. Somebody loved us enough to die for us. But now somebody's put a seed in us and we're fallen. I'm giving you ammunition. I'm giving you a sword to fight against the thoughts of the enemy when he comes on you that you have no value. Now I have the bad news for you. It won't work unless you do it. Hearing me say it is not doing it. You hearing me and then doing it yourself, that's doing it. The man who built his house on the rock heard the word of God and did the word of God. And his house stood firm when the enemy came against him with lies. The man who heard the word of God but didn't bother to do it 
was like the man who built on the sand. The storm, the enemy came, that whispered in his ear, and he crashed under it. End of Matthew chapter 7. Read it for yourself. All right. I have told you about knowledge. You've got knowledge. Now I have to believe what I've heard. When we choose to accept God's Word as truth, regardless of what we see around us. In John 4, verse 50, is a beautiful example. A man came to Jesus. He said, my son is sick. He's going to die. And Jesus said, you go on home. He's going to live. And it says, the man took Jesus at his word. Jesus said it. He believed it. The man took Jesus at his word. There's, there's where most Christians fall down. We don't take Jesus at his word. You know what? With what I've just taught you, I am God's child. If I get up in the morning and I feel tired, my mouth tastes like an elephant slept in it, and I can't get my eyes open because they're stuck together, I am still a child of God. I don't care how I feel. Did you get that? doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with feelings. It has to do with reality. The reality is in the Word of God. That's reality. God doesn't lie, so it's reality. He said, I have value because I'm His child. That settles it. Now let's go on with life. We're going to look at faith now. If you believe something but don't do anything with it, it doesn't work. So we have to take what we believe and put it into practice, which is faith. And I'm going to explain that to you if you don't mind waiting for another half hour. Second Corinthians 4.18 We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So the things I can't see in God's kingdom are eternal. The things that I can see around me are going to be gone someday. That's what Paul's trying to say. Fix your eyes on those things you can't see. I want you to picture, over here is the kingdom of God. And over here, just to my left, is the kingdom of this world. We can see the things in the kingdom of this world. We can't see the things in the kingdom of God. All the promises of God, if we'll walk in obedience to Him, all those promises when we need them are ours. That's reality. The kingdom of this world, all the things the world promises us, if you had this car, you'd be happy. If you just dressed like this, you'd be cool. All those things are temporary and are fading away. This is reality over here, the kingdom of God. And I start seeing by the eye of faith the things in the kingdom of God. That's where my victory will come from. I just said, I see in the kingdom of God that because I was dead, I choose to die, and I was buried, I seed come into me. Therefore, I can overcome the enemy. I see that in the kingdom of God. So I take that and I start to speak it out, live with it, so that I'm victorious. Paul is talking about an unseen.
kingdom that will be eternal versus the one we see which is fading away. First Peter 1 9. For you are receiving in gold of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now this is way back in First Peter 1, the one we started with. And Peter here is saying, it takes faith. I told you that to be born again, there has to be repentance, and to, and to separate ourselves from the old world, to be saved from the old life, we have to be water baptized. But you see, if we know that, but we don't do anything about it, it won't work for us. You might still be saved. I'm not saying you go to hell. But it's not working for us. Christians still are tormented by wrong thoughts which produce wrong feelings which lead us the wrong way. So I need to look at this verse and say, I, I have a goal and I'm going to use faith to take the knowledge that I have and the fact that I chose to believe it. Now I'm going to start to exercise faith in order to make that work. Faith is what makes it work. Alright, we need to speak it out. And this is from Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. I just said that, so we need to take it. In Romans 10, 8-10, listen to me. But what does it say? The Word is near you. It is in your, your what? Your mouth. It's in your mouth. That's weird. And it's in your heart. That is the word of faith we're proclaiming. If we could, he used it in verse 9 as an example. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, we were taught that that's the born-again experience. Yes, but it's also when I believe that God gave me value because of those three things. And I start speaking out what I believe. It saves me from the enemy that's pumping thoughts into my mind that I'm worthless and no good. It saves me from that attack. Every one of us here needs to be saved from stuff the enemy is trying to destroy us with. We need to be saved from it. So it means that as well. Paul here was writing to spirit-filled people. Hello. Spirit-filled people. That's my pet fly. Don't hurt him. And so we need to recognize that why is he saying to save spiritual people, you need to do this to get saved? Because he was trying to say, you need to do this to save yourself from the attacks of the enemy. Then verse, in verse um, 10 it says, it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. In other words, if I choose to believe God, that makes me just before him. And it is with your mouth that you confess that you are saved. Now let me step aside. There's teaching out there about how, about confessing that God's going to make you wealthy. You'll buy, you'll have three Rolls Royces in the driveway, five swimming pools. I'm not preaching that gospel. I'm not interested in it. I've been to Africa where it's destroyed churches over there because they took it, they took it, and and everybody's trying to do it and it's not working. God doesn't supply our greeds; He supplies our needs. There's a huge difference between the two. What I'm saying is whenever I need something from this kingdom of God, I need to speak it with my mouth to get it come from there into my life. 
even in Ezekiel, when God showed him the vision of dry bones, what did Ezekiel have to do? He had to speak to the bones. What did Jesus do in the wilderness to get rid of the enemy? He had to speak to the enemy. What does it say in Hebrews 13 when he says, I'll, God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So therefore, we say, what do I have to fear? God is looking after me. We have to say those things. And we're going to work more at that this week. So the helmet of the, the I'm sorry, the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's talk about the helmet of salvation first. The helmet of salvation is up here. And in your head, you know the Word of God. If you don't, you better get to know But it's, to me, it's like ammunition for a machine gun. We've got to start up here in this cabinet. The Word of God is like ammunition for a machine gun. I know the two really shouldn't be taught in Christian circles together. We don't believe in machine guns and stuff, but they do exist. So I've got this ammunition up here. Now you say, my heart is where I have to take that ammunition and put it in the clip. Store them in the clip that fits into the gun. So that's kind of like my heart. And the, and the gun itself is my mouth. Not very flattering, but nevertheless. And I think if Paul had been writing today, instead of using a helmet and a sword and stuff, he would have said, the Word of God is like ammunition up here. Your heart is like the clip where the ammunition goes into. And then when the enemy comes at you, you stick that clip up into your gun and you start firing bullets out and to drive them away. The way he actually put it is, what we know up here and believe in our heart, when we speak that out, it's like the sword and the shield. The sword drives back the enemy, but the shield, which is also the Word of God, the shield of faith stops the flaming arrows or the fiery darts, depending which translation you use. They stop the, the thoughts of the enemy that's driving, trying to drive you into deception. If we don't stop those with the Word of God, that's speaking the truth of the Word of God, if we don't stop it, we're going to start believing what we're hearing and start to respond to it. It's that simple. We need to become fighters. He put the armor in there to understand we need to become fighters. He calls us soldiers. We need to take it. And when I take the Word of God and I begin to speak out the Word of God, that's warfare. Let's look at some scriptures. I want to drop into 2 Corinthians 4.13. 2 Corinthians 4.30. He says, I believe, therefore I have spoken. With the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Let me paraphrase that. Let me assume that somebody says to Paul, Paul, describe faith to me. How do I work faith? Paul simply said, I believe, therefore I spoke. That's faith. Faith isn't where you have to... <clears throat> faith is when you take 
what you know of the Word of God. You've chosen to believe it. Believing is a choice, by the way. It's not a feeling. You've chosen to believe what you know. And then when the enemy is attacking, you go at him with the, with the sword and the shield. And you do warfare with him. And the Lord said, Blessed is he who overcomes. How can we overcome? By doing warfare against him. And this is at the end of this teaching on my value. Because across the face of this country and maybe the world, I believe one of the problems, not the greatest one mainly, but one of the main problems in Christians is low self-image, low self-esteem. I want to tell you something. You can take courses on esteem and all that stuff, but if they're not Jesus-based, they're no good. They're no good. Our value is in our Father. Our value is in our Father who created us, who died for us. It was God in that man, Jesus, that died on the cross. I read that in Romans chapter 1. Even though he's the son of David, he was the son of God. It's interesting in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to both as the son of David, sometimes the son of man, which is the same thing, other times son of God. Why? Because he was a physical man with God inside of him. Now, we can start walking in the Spirit this way. You can lay aside all the teachings about laying hands on the sick and all that beautiful stuff walking. Let's walk in the Spirit this way. When the enemy is hitting me, say, Howard, you're no good. And out of my cloud comes, Father, I thank you for being my dad. I thank you my value is based on who you are. You see, I'm walking in the Spirit. If I'm walking in the flesh, I say, oh, yeah, it's not just me. I'm always me because I'm no good. I just go out in the garden and eat worms. That's walking in the flesh. Are you ready to walk in the Spirit? Okay, just, not, I don't want you to forget about laying hands on people. Forget about it for a few minutes here. Just think of, I'm going to start saying what God has said about me. That's walking in the Spirit. I didn't say I'm going to start thinking about it. I said you're going to start saying it. Walking in the Spirit. Saying what God said about you. Father, you have taught me this. Now I have given it to someone else. You put it in my heart. You have to put it in theirs. All I could do is stick it in their ears. So, Father, I ask you to begin to put it in their hearts so strong that they will not they will not be satisfied until it starts to flow out of their mouth like a river of living water. You spoke of that water as the Holy Spirit. Let it flow out of the Lord God, the truth of God's Word. And we ask you, Lord God, in this time that they're learning about the things of the Spirit, that this thing about your Holy Spirit, a walking in the Spirit, would become so real to them in the next number of months that it, that it would become second nature to them. It would just be an automatic way of response to the enemy because they're so used to it. So, Father, be with them. The enemy's going to try to destroy it, Lord, but you're bigger than he is. And I thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen.
please visit our website at jwmi.ca to find out about more information of our ministry.